Welcome to the Asia edition of Breaking Banks, the number one global fintech podcast. I'm Rachel Williamson. And I'm Karis Palmer. Every fortnight, we dissect the successes and failures of financial innovators and bring you the people at the top of their field working to disrupt banking. From traditional banks doing things differently to startups navigating the unforgiving world of financial services, I'm Simon Spencer, and this is Breaking Banks Asia. Welcome to Breaking Banks Asia. I'm your host, Rachel Williamson, and on this episode, we are discussing banking in the Philippines with Gus Poston. He's the co-founder of NetBank in the Philippines, and he's also funded a private equity fund designed to invest in Filipino banks. That's the very, very quick shorthand of his banking and fintech career, which also includes Sri Lanka and Cambodia. I met Gus in Singapore last year when we dived deep into why Philippine banking is why it is, and this is what we're going to rehash today. It's a really interesting system there with lots of opportunity for fintech upgrades to existing banks, but one that not many have actually cracked yet. Gus, thank you so much for joining me. It's a pleasure, Rachel. Looking forward to the discussion. Now, the loose numbers about the Philippines is that more than half of the country is unbanked, and this one might be apocryphal, but more people have mobile phones than bank accounts. So let's start at the top. Can you describe the Philippines banking sector for me and why this is the case? Why do more people have mobile phones than they do bank accounts? Yeah, it is a very interesting market. And um, it has stood out for a while as being an underperformer in um, a number of different areas of financial inclusion. The overall structure of the Filipino banking industry has made it a little bit difficult for the central bank to be controlling the industry in the way as it might want to. It was originally set up um, using a sort of US-style banking structure of having multiple layers um, of commercial, thrift, and rural banks, rural banks being similar to the community banks in the US. This has led, in a way, same as the US, to a structure whereby you have some banks for some people and other banks for other people. Is is it also the situation where... Um, you have a bank on one island that cannot bank in another province, perhaps, say, like in the US where banks can't really bank across state lines. So that was true in the past. Um, It was true that there are geographic limits on rural banks, but that was released in roughly the, in sort of during the 1980s. Um, And so now uh, banks are free to grow. So the successful banks can can grow out of their particular island. But you still do see a lot of um, individual rural banks, um, which have a very limited geographic focus. And life is tough for them. You know, they were originally designed to be the, the financial inclusion mechanism for the rural population. But banking has changed a lot from when the structure was set up. Um, And it's just very difficult to be a one unit, two unit bank nowadays. You can't afford the investment, the technology, et cetera. Having said that, things are changing fast in the Philippines Um, because there's this big demand for banking and also because there's a lot of um, fintechs which have moved into the space. People are now finding other ways to be included. Mobile wallets have grown really rapidly. 
Um, Gcash is a phenomenon and, you know, maybe 70 million accounts, not all of them active, but still, that's a, that's a huge number of people using a, a individual bank account. And there's a whole prol proliferation of other um, financial services providers who, if you like, the mass market is using, even though they're not formally banked you will find that most Filipino adults have incredibly complicated financial lives because they're cobbling together a bunch of different services which allow them to meet their daily needs. You can't do without the financial services, so they just find another solution. Can you describe for me what a typical Filipino's financial life might look like? Yes, that's a really good question. So a typical Filipino family may have one worker, uh, one family member working overseas. Um, and so they will be receiving remittance, which they will probably get from, they may pick up from pawn shops or it may be paid into their GCash account. They will probably also, there'll be somebody who's um, maybe working for cash at the moment, say, let's say a, a trike driver. They will be working for cash, but they'll be starting to think about taking some of their payments through QR codes um, and maybe through uh through maybe gcash transfers um and there'll probably be somebody who's a member of a finance company or uh, borrowed from a finance company or maybe a member of a microfinance institution they're getting a loan they're regularly repaying back that loan and probably somewhere there's somebody in the household who has a bank account but the volume of transactions that go through that bank account compared to some of these other interactions is probably quite low so what's striking in that is there's a number of different entities which are providing financial services, all of them outside of the banking industry, and a lot of them not really connecting up to each other. And when you don't have a bank that you can turn to for all of your needs, you have to use all of those different services. Now, I just want to take you back a step, back to these rural banks, because I understand a lot of them are failing due to their size, due to other reasons. Can you talk us through why these smaller banks are collapsing and what you are doing about this? Sure, yeah. So there are currently 450 rural banks. Um, if you look at the late 80s, there are over 1,000. Um, and the number of rural banks is basically reducing every year. Um, this is somewhat due to mergers, although those are quite difficult. It's often due to the fact that these banks are closing. A lot of these banks are just very small. They've sort of been around for a like long time. Small? They have. I mean, at the moment, the minimum capital level is 10 million pesos, so about $200,000. Um, wow. So, you know, the there are, at the smaller end, the central bank is doing its best to sort of clean up the market and, and engender uh, consolidation. But it's a slow and difficult process, both to get agreement from the um, owners, and then to get regulatory approval, frankly, also does take quite a while. Um, and so that whole merger process just hasn't has never really taken off. I started working in the Philippines to try and create a consolidation play through the fund that you mentioned earlier. Um, and it proved quite difficult to get the type of momentum that we were seeking um, because of these two issues of getting um, agreement from people who aren't really used to mergers and acquisitions. And also then the pace of approval through the authorities and the level of pressure that the authorities were putting on banks to merge just wasn't really enough. Compare it to, say, a country like Sri Lanka, which rapidly increased minimum capital levels 
led to a, a rapid cleanup of the banking system. You just don't see that in the Philippines in the same way. Do you think um, that level of regulatory intervention has changed in the last few years? Because my impression, just reading the news around what's happening in the Philippines, there's been a lot happening. There have been a number of efforts to, um, as I say, create consolidation, to create larger banks. And what you're seeing now is that there is a slow progress of medium-sized banks moving into these rural areas. But I think you know, even the central bank would say that it hasn't gone as quickly as they would have wanted. As I say, I would also not say that this is because the central bank hasn't done enough. It's more just it's it's a difficult structure to be reforming. Especially when there's nothing to replace it and there's no no digital option to replace it with either if you you want to strip out a bank branch from a very small island somewhere. Yeah, that's right. That's right. But having said that, really what's what's transforming financial inclusion is the digital other digital solutions. Well, let's talk about said, that then. You co-founded NetBank, which is a banking as a service provider, and it offers all sorts of things such as lending, moved into open banking last year, uh, remittances. How do banks like NetBank and others that are similar fit into the Philippines banking model and how are they breaking it? NetBank broadly is basically an open banking approach um, aiming to bring uh, people who are receiving financial services through unregulated entities um, bring those services into a regulated framework by providing a utility service to fintechs and other existing financial services companies so that um, we can be the underlying infrastructure um, and our partners can continue to do the customer-facing front end. It's a little bit like separating out vehicle dealers from vehicle manufacturers with a manufacturer, somebody else can be the dealer. This is this approach of banking as a service in some markets has been explicitly regulated, and in some markets it's been it's come about um, through a combination of agent banking um, frameworks and uh, sort of partnership approaches, which is what's happened in the Philippines. So there's no explicit banking as a service regulation in the Philippines, but there's a um, there's a possibility to provide this type of service through established approaches around origination agreements um, and agency banking. What this does is it allows a more specialist customer interaction by people who are just really good at these types of customer interactions, um, such as maybe microfinance institutions or supply chains. Um, or vehicle dealerships and things like that. These entities may not have the expertise to run a regulated bank. So we are the regulated bank behind that customer-facing capability which our partners have. And what impact is that having on bringing people into the banking system and, and on the banking sector more broadly? So we're just starting out, to be honest. There's a huge opportunity um, to grow this approach of separating out the manufacturer from the sales. But what we can do is basically take all these inefficient banking services providers who are not regulated as formal banks, and we can make the whole structure a lot more efficient. We can work with more efficient balance sheets. We can get direct access to the payments systems, etc. And so all of the services which currently people are using 
for their financial services, which are forced into operating inefficiently and at a high cost, we can allow these costs to reduce considerably. So in the medium term, what they should do is, is allow um, all of those millions of banking interactions, which are happening outside of the banking structure, to still be efficient in the way that the banks can be efficient and safe and secure in the way that uh, regulation ensures banks are, um, but without having people having to move their existing relationships away from the uh, institutions which they already know and trust. So we're working with microfinance institutions, which by regulation can't open bank accounts. They may have half a million members who are borrowing, but these members don't have bank accounts. Now, by working with us, this microfinance institution can then enable all of these half a million members to start getting bank accounts. That seems like a much easier way of, of getting people into the banking sector. You've been involved with a number of banks in the Philippines with a view to taking their legacy operations and fintechifying them. How have your goals changed since your initial start in the country in 2014? For example, when you first bought into First Valley Bank in Mindanao to starting NetBank in 2020. So, yes, it's an interesting question because you can only really see the scope of the change in an industry by looking back. When we started out, actually, one of the reasons why I was interested in the Philippines, because mobile banking seemed to be taking off here. But um, it was very nascent. Nobody really knew how it would work. The original thesis um, for the investment approach was basically to expand a more traditional banking model um, when we started investing in some of the rural banks in the Philippines. Um, now we see that the way of uh, both increasing efficiency, increasing reach, um, it has to combine the physical banking structure with the digital banking structure. So that's certainly one change, increasing focus on digitization. Another change, I think, is that you just see a lot of it's the banking market has become a lot more complicated because there are non-banks, uh, technology companies, other originators who are providing financial services. If you're working within financial services, you don't only work with banks nowadays. You've got to work with all of these other players who are frankly touching more people's lives than the formal banks. There's not one solution which is going to work for everyone. So I agree that you have different customer groups which need different uh, delivery models. And I think there is benefit from having sort of local touch and feel. The South of the Philippines speaks a different language. It has a slightly different culture. Um, and having people who can bring that language and culture to small businesses is really important. Yeah, you make a really good point there where you are in a country where there are I can't remember how many languages, but there's a there's a number, aren't there? There I, are. I mean, I can't remember how many there are either, but it's it's surprisingly large. It's only like fifteen or so. Yeah, and you know that creates its own banking challenge in itself when you're dealing with entirely different languages within one country and one regulatory jurisdiction. And you know, banking is really it's people's lives. It's um, the entity has to be trusted. Um, and it's really part of the community in a way that not many other industries are. So you have to take account of all of these factors. Even if you're taking a digital approach, um, you can't ignore the fact that you're dealing with people's livelihood 
Um, and so they need to know and trust. Well, let's talk about trust. In the context of banking collapses and some pretty high-profile frauds that have taken place within banks and by banks, is the regulatory framework strong enough to protect consumers and, and win trust to encourage them to bank? And if it's not, what do you do about that? So generally, the, the central bank in the Philippines has had a very strong agenda around improving customer protection um, and customer trust. And there have even been some explicit laws on how banks should interact with customers in order to improve the quality of that interaction. There is, however, a underlying systemic challenge here in that with so many individual small banks, it becomes a very difficult process. And so in the medium term, I think the only way that the uh, the central bank is going to be able to engender increased trust is to ensure that the overall structure is very solid. And I think it's fair to say that some of the uh, smaller banks don't have that sort of stability or capability in order to engender the right level of customer trust. So in the medium term, unfortunately, I think it will um, you know, there'll need to be a change to the um, industry structure, which is going back to where we were at the beginning. It's not just a question of efficiency, it's also a question of trust. But then technology also does really help. You know, there's um, better ways to interact with banks, there's more access to information, just easier ways of getting hold of your account officer through technology. Um, and banks which can use these these new technologies are going to be able to increase their, their level of uh, the trust in their customers more easily. And I think you know the next wave, although you know not to sort of jump on the bandwagon, um, artificial intelligence would also be a good way of increasing customer trust. Being able to have a discussion with with a messaging tool in order to get the information that you need could also help. And how do you think? that would go down where you are with your client base? I think in some ways it could be a lot better. So there are some language issues, but it works in Tagalog, so that will get half the country. I think people are used to having something which is closer to a discussion rather than reading a linear form and having something whereby unstructured questions can be posed, I think will probably help people's trust. Let's talk about fintech regulations in the Philippines. What, in your opinion, have been the most influential for fostering digital banking in the country? The opportunity to onboard people digitally, which the e-wallets were able to do, has definitely helped. And let's face it, a lot of the increasing financial inclusion has been driven by the e-wallets. However, there's further to go. Um, the Philippines is only really starting in digital identity, and the range of forms of identity um, is still quite broad, quite a lot of fraud and quite a lot of risk there. So um, in continuing to improve the national ID system could be really good. I think the next wave, um, which is something that the central bank is working on, will be open banking. As I said, Filipino people have very confusing and complicated financial services lives, getting information shared between 
these non-bank institutions and banked institutions in a way which is sort of accepted and approved by the regulator could really help bring the two bits of the sector together. The central bank has a program um, to promote this. Open banking may not be the pure open banking that people think about of sharing information across all of the financial services companies, but what you could call maybe semi-open banking, which promotes partnerships between banks and non-banks. The entities involved in that would benefit from having a regulatory structure which promotes it and explicit support for that. And once that happens, then I think um, there could be a really big jump forward because these partnerships in the long run are uh, where I think the market needs to go. How far away do you think that future is? There are a few banks which are looking at this type of partnership. So I think the market is ready. I think the fintechs are ready. And I think the central bank is definitely thinking about the right type of regulation and support. It's complicated. There's no doubt. It takes a couple of years to get all the parties to sort of work out what's possible. But I think the next couple of years are going to be very interesting in these types of partnerships. And I think that's really going to transform. Thank you so much, Gus. Pleasure. It's been a very interesting discussion. Thank you. And thank you to our listeners. I'm your host, Rachel Williamson, and this is Breaking Banks Asia. If you enjoyed today's episode of Breaking Banks Asia, don't forget to share it on Twitter, leave us a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you listen to our show. This helps us build our audience and support our sponsors so we can continue to bring you a great show every fortnight.